continue our study in the book of Jeremiah, picking up in chapter 28. Jeremiah chapter 28, taking on the entirety of this chapter, these 17 verses, I continuing I, in this study and this incredible uh, journey uh, of a prophet by the name of Jeremiah, coinciding I, with an incredibly perilous time uh, in the kingdom of Judah, a nation uh, that was in fact to be a theocracy, was in fact to be the covenant people of God, uh, but they had forsaken that role and that responsibility uh, such that uh, the, the great mission and ministry that had been given to a man by the name of Jeremiah uh, was to devote his life to delivering a true message from God. We see it time and time again. God is instructing Jeremiah, and when Jeremiah speaks, he doesn't say, I think. He says, thus saith the Lord. Now, that should ring familiar to our ears, because in reality, I, the, the mission and the ministry, that requirement hasn't changed one bit. Uh, those who dare to speak uh, on behalf of our Heavenly Father should be saying the same words, followed by the words in which God has given to us. Uh, it's certainly our intent to do so tonight. Uh, here in chapter 28, we have a time here with Jeremiah, uh, and it's not an experience he hasn't known already, but it is one that is quite confrontational, one that is isolated for us, uh, where a false prophet not only disputes uh, his message, but in fact, personally, uh, con confronts him. One might even say in our modern era, he assaults him. And we get to watch here from the, from the, from the front row uh, as to how the man of God handles these circumstances uh, and, and being true to God's Word and to God's calling in his life. I think that's worth for our, our observation tonight. I think that it is important to see what we're going to find in chapter 28 is a consistency in the commitment of God's man to the message he was given, also an equal commitment to trusting in the declaration of God's Word and trusting uh, the judgment into God's hands. There's something else tonight that we're going to examine. I believe we're going to get an insight into the heart and the mind of the prophet, a man of God who takes no pleasure, no joy in speaking of God's divine judgment. Yet he knows in obedience to God, he must. It will be a reminder to us, I believe, tonight as well uh, as believers and followers of our Heavenly Father and His Word. Jeremiah chapter 28, let's begin reading in verse 1. And it happened in the same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Ezer, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priest and of all the people, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have spoken, excuse me, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah, 
in the presence of the priest and in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who were carried away captive from Babylon to this place. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, and they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beast of the field also. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah, the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Well, as we open this chapter, it is uh, indeed a moment a moment in the life of God's man, a moment in the life of a prophet who stands in the, in the very face of culture, as it were, that stands against him. I say culture because that's exactly where uh, the enemy was for Jeremiah. He was declaring God's word, but the culture did not want to hear it. They did not want to receive it nor expect it or accept it. And I'm not talking about simply a secular culture, even though I think it was very secularized for that definition at the time, but even those who claim to be of a religious standing. For after all, it is Hananiah who's claiming to be a prophet. What was his claim? Well, we don't know for certain, but the opening verses say uh, that his statement, or I suppose his statement of credibility, was the fact that he was the son of a prophet. That was his claim. So he comes forward and he begins to come up with this alternate message here, this alternate prophecy with regard to Jeremiah's. Now, why does he do that? Well, we need only look at the subject matter to understand what he's appealing to. First of all, uh, he contradicts Hanan uh, Jeremiah's prophecies concerning the future of King Jehoiakim. Because if we look back uh, to chapter 22 and verse 26 and verse 27... Jeremiah has declared plainly from the Lord, so I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land which they desire to return, there they shall not return. So he is claiming that the king will certainly return back, <clears throat> excuse me, to Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah where Jeremiah has already said that it will not happen. 
Secondly, he brings up something else. He speaks about the durations of the exile. The duration of the exile, he claims, will only be two years after Jeremiah has already declared by God's word. That's not quite accurate. It'll be 70 years of exile. Finally, he speaks to the idea of their treasures being returned. Now, remember in chapter 27, one of the striking things that happened as Jeremiah is declaring uh, using the yoke of wood as that uh, walking illustration or object lesson of his sermons, uh, one of the burning questions that they have for him is, what about the treasury? What about the temple furnishings about when they would return? It's a striking thing, by the way, that that's their obsession. That's their worry. Uh, and, and you can see here something of a, of a kinship to what happens with furnishings, what happens with objects, and how tempted we are to give them of greater importance than they rightly should have. So now Hananiah appeals to that concern, and he tells them, he says, no, by the way, those things are coming back too. Again, contradicting what we read in chapter 27 in verse 22, where he says, They shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. So we see something different here with regard to Hananiah's prophecy and Jeremiah's. Not only do they contradict one another, but it's plain to see that Hananiah is taking a message here that he knows will appeal to the eyes and the ears of those he's speaking to. This is what Jeremiah is fighting against with regard to the idea of culture. Because he's now presenting a message that he knows that they desire to hear, that they want to picture, that they want to know. We know that, uh, that, that Hananiah actually threatens Jeremiah himself, uh, in a sense, when he goes and snatches the yoke off the prophet's neck and breaks it. And for dramatic effect, he said, thus says the Lord, see, as I break this yoke of wood, that's how I'm going to break the yoke that is against you. Well, it sounds very impressive, very compelling. I can almost picture that Hananiah had something of a gift of uh, oratory and speech to be charismatic, to gather the people's attention. And, and, And just for a moment here, folks, I think we need to recognize about our own human nature, our own sinful human nature. Uh, And that, in fact, that we are immediately drawn to people who are effective in speaking. We are. When we hear somebody who can communicate or someone who can effectively present a point and make a compelling argument, we're drawn to them no matter what it is they're actually saying. And so with with Hananiah, we can only picture the fact that he's certainly saying the right words, and if he goes to the point of making a dramatic scene of snatching off that wooden yoke and breaking it for the people for dramatic effect, then we understand he knows how to appeal uh, to the base sense of flesh in everyone. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that everyone and anyone who addresses people such as the man of God or anybody else should not strive to do the best that they can to present as clearly as possible an understanding of the Word of God. It's certainly, I believe, incumbent upon anyone, however that is represented, who preaches and teaches, to be passionate about that which they're preaching and teaching about. I, that's I, at least the way I see it. 
Uh, but I also know that there are many men historically uh, in the church who would be looked at in some respects, looking back historically of their writings, uh, to being one of the, the finest godly men to stand in the pulpit and expose God's Word. And yet I dare say they wouldn't get a second hearing in many of the larger churches in our land. You know why? Because they would be found dry. In some cases, monotone. You know why? Because people, especially in our culture today, have no patience to actually sit and listen and think about what's being said. They want to be moved by what's being said. Thus becomes the difference between Hananiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah did object lessons, that's right, but what did Jeremiah do? He didn't walk around shouting. He didn't break the, the yoke of wood. He walked around as God has instructed him to. And by the way, he didn't do it for a week. He didn't do it for a month. He did it for several months, by all accounts, before Hananiah pulls this stunt. What is it that's appealing with regard to Hananiah? Well, let's look at, what the, look at all the buttons he pushed. Everything he said would have been absolutely popular. It was a bold message saying the fact that this is going to come to an end. God says, this thing's almost over. Don't worry about it, guys. Everything's going to be back in place in two years. God's going to return the stuff to the temple. You need not worry about it. God's going to bring our king back. You need not worry about it. My goodness, I'm declaring it. Does that not sound a little bit familiar? For years, I've heard people uh, from the religious uh, institution who have been declaring that the greatest revival ever thought of is just around the corner. If they've not been declaring a revival that's just around the corner, they've been declaring you've got a miracle waiting for you around the corner. Everything they've promoted to you. I heard only in the last couple of months, I made reference to this before, uh, that, that one of the, uh, what I believe to be the false teachers of our nation uh, declared this virus over. He killed it. Call it. It's over. And yet here we are. And that becomes the problem with the credibility of a man named Hananiah, of which Jeremiah easily, easily was able to expose for what it is. Now, it helps, obviously, if you're Jeremiah and you're confident that the message you're bringing is that which God has given you. All right? One of the things that you and I must understand about trusting in God's Word, you and I as God's people by virtue of the faith that God has given us, should have, and I pray you do have, an absolute confidence that the Word of God is absolutely true, that it's inspired, inerrant, given by God through the, through the voice and the writing of men. Now, if we understand that, then there's something else we also need to understand. We believe that and we trust in that because God has made it so. He has revealed Himself to us. He has transformed our heart and our mind to see it clearly. We cannot begin to imagine that the world would feel the same way that we do. Therefore, we cannot be shaken, we cannot be discouraged, and we cannot be defeated that when we declare a message that we know is God's Word and God's truth, it cannot shock us that the world will not agree with it. In fact, let me be even more particular. We also cannot be shocked, maybe surprised, but not shocked that even those who count themselves amongst God's people will often not agree with it because they are in fear of being counter to the cultural surroundings that they find themselves in. Hananiah appealed to the culture. 
He appealed to the idea. I mean, this is, this is perfect. Reducing our sentence from 70 years to two years, now we're talking. That's the man of God we need. This guy must have God's ear where Jeremiah does not. To get all that stuff returned post-haste, now you're talking. That's a man of God. To get these things back, I, I'll, never, I'll never forget watching in a, in a movie many years ago about, uh, about General Patton, and I'm sure it was absolutely embellished. Uh, and he was calling in a chaplain that he wanted him to pray a prayer for good weather. And he determined because the weather lifted that the chaplain had some kind of inside track with God and was going to decorate him. So let me get this straight. The one true and living God provides a merciful lifting of cloud cover, which, by the way, the minister was conflicted about. You want me to pray that God will clear this up so you can kill people? Let me get this straight. But God does it, and who do we, who do we give credit to? The man who uttered the prayer, who was completely powerless to make anything happen, rather than giving thanks to God, who had no reason to respond to that prayer other than his Divine will, love, mercy, and grace. So here's the issue. Hananiah is in effect saying God said this, but Hananiah knows that this is the ticket to his rebranding. This is the ticket to his recognition. And after all, let's, let's weigh the two in the balance. Hananiah, we can get out of this in two years. Jeremiah says, you're not getting out of this at all. You're not getting out of this at all. King's not coming back. Temple furnishings, they'll come back, but they won't come back on your timeline. It'll only be when God chooses to do so. Thirdly, you're going to be in exile, and you'll be lucky to be in exile for 70 years. Because what's left behind is going to suffer a far worse fate. Jeremiah, every Sunday, is preaching what the world might say is gloom and doom. Hananiah is on the corner says, come follow me, brother. We're out of this in a couple of years. Easy peasy. Why? Because we're God's people. God's got to give it to us. It sounds reasonable. Sounds very appealing, bold, patriotic, uplifting, positive. Absolutely. Jeremiah responds. If we look back to verse 5, it says, And the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priest and in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who were carried away captive from Babylon to this place. Now, there are some who look at this passage of Scripture and they seem to be a little confounded by it. They seem to wonder and try to interpret, was, was Jeremiah being sarcastic or was he being sincere? Jeremiah knew better, so why is he saying this? So they presume that amen must have been an absolute joke of a statement by Jeremiah because he knew the truth. Well, maybe that's not what this is at all. Maybe it is that a man of God, a prophet of God, took no pleasure in knowing and declaring this truth of God's judgment. Maybe it is that Jeremiah says, I wish that were so, Hananiah. I wish that was the future of my country. I wish it was. But I know it's not. I know it's not. What is it that Jeremiah is saying? Jeremiah is saying what all of us as believers should say. I take no pleasure. I take no joy out of watching my country be destroyed, watching my country go to, to, to absolute nothing but a pile of rubble, watching the people that are my people 
that I have prayed for, that I have pleaded with, that I have declared the need to turn and repent and know that judgment is at hand. And I have told you, and I know that God is bringing it, but I take absolutely no joy in it whatsoever. My friend, that should be the case for us. We can never avoid speaking of divine judgment. God forbid that we would. It is an absolute fact. But my friend, take no joy in it. Take no pleasure. There's no laughter to be had in those who will die in their sin and suffer the eternal torment of hell and separation from God. But it is absolutely wrong and sinful not to declare the truth that that is exactly what's going to happen. To pray that those would accept Jesus Christ not because He's a good idea, not because He's a great addition, but, uh, great addition, but in fact He's the only hope. Just as it was for Judah to repent, the same is true for us. Our only hope is to repent, to turn back to God. Now, I know that God carries that out. But God doesn't let me in on who He's carrying it out to, nor when is He carrying it out. So my concern is for everyone in the room, everyone within the sound of my voice, it is my job, my calling, your job, your calling, to plead with every one of them to believe, to trust, to turn. And we'll walk away in peace with God, not because we did such a fine job, but because we trust in the fact that God can use even our puny efforts. And it will not deter him from carrying out his will. This is what Jeremiah's responsibility was. Jeremiah says, I wish it were so. Amen. Let it be. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. If we're going to believe this, then let's put it to a rightful test. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries, great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. So what is it that he's telling us? I think what Jeremiah is proposing to us very clearly here is, no doubt, it's not hard to be a prophet of war. And that's true. Have you ever stopped and thought about in the history of even our country how many years we've actually existed without being involved in some war somewhere? Now broaden the scope. How many years in history as we know it when there hasn't been a war, conflict, or pestilence taking place? Is there a year that passes by where there's not a drought, when there's not uh, a disease, where there's not some horrible thing cropping up? We have a time period now in our history where we cannot go a week without a terrorist somewhere killing someone, taking someone's child, tempting to take over some country. In the last few weeks, we have seen very few nights when the news has not let off with somebody wanting to burn something down in the name of building it back up again the way they want it. So we recognize for a prophet to say, oh, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be war. Jeremiah says many have done that through the years. And I would suggest that what Jeremiah is telling you is, is that many, both true and false prophets, have said that. And Jeremiah says it's a can't-miss deal right? He said, however, 
It's one thing when you prophesy war. It's another when you prophesy peace. It's another when you prophesy peace. And he says, for this to take place clearly gives us an opportunity to determine who is the true and who the false prophet is. He says, as for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. So the measure of one who predicts peace is what? It is the outcome. Now, we've done this consistently throughout Jeremiah, and I think it's a practice that must always be done when you're examining Old Testament scriptures. Number one, you recognize the context in which they are given, and you know exactly and can see the impact that it has. For instance, Jeremiah is standing before the people of Judah, and he's literally giving them the prophecy of the future of their lives and of their country. And history teaches us that it came true exactly as God gave it to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah gave it to the people. Now, we also know that God points out to us that even in the daily lives of Judah, the daily work of Jeremiah, not only is the, is the immediate future of Judah and its impact on the world unfolding before our eyes, but we also see here a message and a lesson of that which is to be fulfilled in the future through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the futile efforts of men are on display here. Even when God has given them exactly what to do, man will fail to carry it out perfectly. So what is it that we're seeing here with regard to the test? Well, I think there's a great lesson to be learned if we apply the test to our own Jesus Christ. Because if we apply this test to Jesus Christ, there's some interesting things that we see here. Number one, it is Jesus who both speaks of both violence and war and also of peace. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, it is Jesus who said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Later in chapter 24 and verse 6, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All right? So Jesus is telling us without a shadow of a doubt that even as he come to the earth to fulfill the mission that God had given him, that he recognized that the very essence of his existence, his sinless life, his sacrifice, his victory over the grave, this will be a divisive moment. It will be one that will bring conflict, not simply take it away. However, he will also tell us that he is bringing peace to pass as well. In John chapter 14 and verse 27, in speaking to his disciples, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. These things, he says in John 16 and verse 33, I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. All right, so let's review this for a moment. In Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, honestly, 
there are going to be, as long as you exist on the face of this earth until Jesus declares it over, this is what you have. You're going to find that your very stand for Christ is going to honestly, instinctively provide a measure of division, conflict. Secondly, he says, until such time as I declare it over, there will not simply be rumors of wars, there'll be wars. There will not simply be an, a story about pestilence. There will be pestilence. There will be earthquakes. There will be those things that are going to transpire. Count on it. But here's the good news. Even as Jesus declared that these things were in the future, in John chapter 14, he told his disciples, as he was preparing for, to leave this earth physically, he said, I've given you my peace. I've given you my peace. What kind of peace? Well, one thing we do know is what it's not. Immediately, he says, the peace I give to you is not as the world gives. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When he speaks to their heart and their mindset, he wants them to know that you have every reason to be at peace and rest easy no matter what you see transpiring around you. Because I've given you peace. When he says that, he's talking about an objective peace, not subjective. He's not talking about an emotional peace. He's talking about a peace that is an absolute settled fact. That's the reason why he said, this is not the world's peace. It's mine. He says, he gives us an expansion on that, I think, twofold in the writing of Paul. He says, number one, he said, there has been peace made between us and God. There has been peace made between us and God. Notice what he, again what he said in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we as believers are at peace with God tonight. How so? Because we have been justified by not by our actions, but by the actions of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We rest in His work, not ours. We rest in the fact of His sinless life, His sacrifice accepted by God, and that being revealed by His resurrection. Now, so we are at peace with God. Why is that important? Because in Romans, Paul would have, if you had read this, the verses prior to this, he would remind you that before salvation, before God making us known that we are His, the Scripture says very clearly, we are at enmity with God. That is another way of saying we are God's enemy. We live as an enemy to God. God makes it certain in us His salvation. So if we understand that, then we recognize that being made peace with the very creator and sustainer of all things is pretty important. When you look at the landscape tonight of our world, of our country and those surrounding it, it's, it's very easy to see that everything appears to be a group of people that are certainly not at peace with God. If they were at peace with God, their actions toward the world would be radically different. Because, see, having been made at peace with God actually causes us to be at peace with the world around us. For we have a different perspective on exactly what it is based on who we are. He takes it a step further and he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. So he says, knowing Christ 
we are able to discover and know the peace of God. So there's a peace with God settled by Christ. There is a peace of God that you and I can not only know, but grow in, appreciate, and utilize in our lives as believers. And that will help us be at peace with the world. Now, it doesn't mean we signed a peace treaty with the world. It doesn't mean that we are now unaffected by the world. It says that we look at the world and we see it for what it is. It is wicked. It is depraved. Outside of God's divine intervention, then it has no other purpose except to be an enemy of God. No matter what it says. No matter what it claims. Hananiah has now been presented to us as a man who is expressing a message, who is giving evidence of the fact that he is one who is chosen to be an enemy of God. For he's actually standing against God's word, controverting it, claiming that his word is equal to that of a true man of God who's delivered the message. How do we know the difference? Well, we know the difference by virtue of how God reveals to it to us as the truth. Please, if you imagine for a moment that you can persuade the world that God's word is true, my friend, if you can talk them into it, know that somebody else can talk them out of it. It is temporal at best, to say the least. So it is important when we see this test of what it means to bring peace to pass, because the fact of the matter is, there is no peace being brought to pass except that which Christ has accomplished by God the Father. Jeremiah is not prophesying of peace. He's prophesying of the order of God's will. He's prophesying of the events that will take place. Folks, believe me, when, when the Jewish people return to the city of Jerusalem to once again try to rebuild the walls, their houses, and not the least of which the temple, it will not be a time of peace. Not in the world, and quite frankly, not even in their community. Peace cannot be thoroughly accomplished except through Christ, and its completion is still yet to be had until someday in eternity future when we'll know it and know it in its fullness. So he proposes a test. He proposes a test. Hananiah. It says in verse 10, rips that yoke off, and he breaks it, and he says, here it is. This is what the Lord says. Well, obviously, here's a personal confrontation. Hananiah says, I'm going to show you up. Let me, let me make a statement here. Let me be bold. Let me get their attention. And so he did. What did Jeremiah do? Did Jeremiah say, oh, you sorry thing, what do you think you're doing, you ungodly man of the devil? No. He walked away. He walked away. Did he walk away because he was about to lose his temper? I have no idea. Can't begin to know what's in the mind of Jeremiah. I know why we asked that question, because we think we would have. Or we're concerned we would have. Does he, does he argue with him? Does he, does he break into some kind of debate? Does he say, I'm going to go back to the wood shop and make another one? This doesn't change anything? No, he says none of those things. He recognizes at that moment, for him, he needs to walk away. Verse 12, now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, go and tell Hananiah, 
saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, and they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. They shall serve him. I have given him the beast of the field also. So, when we look at, at Jeremiah's response here, we see that when he walked away from Hananiah, it is not because Jeremiah was scared or intimidated by Hananiah. So we realize that his walking away was a prudent move. He understood that he had done in obedience what God had commanded him to do. He let the word of God stand there. He had no, he had no need to enter into some long, endless debate. Proverbs speaks about having the discernment of knowing when to answer a fool and when not to in his folly. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 7, there in the last half of that verse, he says, there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. I have to admit, that must be one of the greatest challenges of our life. Some of us are way too quiet. Some of us talk way too much. So if we understand that, then we realize that Jeremiah, it seems, has done something that has clearly shown a measure of prudence and understanding and not an unwillingness to take care or speak to Hananiah. For God has given him an instruction. He said, now it's time for you to go back and pay a visit to Hananiah. And so he does. He said, by the way, nothing has changed, Mr. Hananiah. What you have done has simply exchanged a yoke of wood for a yoke of iron. What is he saying by that? I mean, I, I don't, you know, Jeremiah's not walking around with a piece of iron on him right now. So what is his point? He said, my friend, God's prophecy is just as certain as it ever was. You breaking a piece of wood doesn't change a thing. And he said, it will come down upon these people as a yoke of iron. And by the way, that yoke of iron is going to crush you. He follows up. He said to him, I hear now, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. These are faithful words. It is, it, is a, it is a confrontation that we don't get to see, I suppose, as often as we like in some recesses of our mind. But here is clearly on, on point. What has he told Hananiah? You have used whatever gifts you have, whatever talent you possess. You have used it to persuade these people to believe a lie. This is a clear case here of an illustration of God wants us to see that God takes none of this lightly, that His judgment is absolutely certain, and it is according to His timing. Because what he tells him now is, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. And so Hanani the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Now, if I'm reading correctly here, in chapter 28 and verse 1, we were told that this event took place in the fourth year and in the fifth month. In verse 17, it says he died in the, of the, same, in the same year in the seventh month. So from the beginning to the end of this episode, two months. I'm not terrific at math, but that seems pretty simple even for me. 
What an amazing thing. Hananiah rises up. He bursts on the scene. He declares this incredibly radical, bold, popular message. Yeah, that's the message we've been waiting to hear. That man must have, a, must have God's ear. This is wonderful. Poor old Jeremiah walking around with that, that yoke of wood and them straps looking like a fool for months. People, no doubt, having a conversation at his expense more often than not. And Jeremiah says, brother, I wish it were so, but it's not. I wish it were so, but it's not. Hananiah says, let me have that yoke, brother. It means nothing to us anymore. Can't you just hear it? I, I, and I'm embellishing, folks. This is Philip chapter 2, verse 3. But can't you just hear Hananiah saying, hey, listen, brother. You can be, just have joy, be happy. This thing's about to be over with. Hey, you're a, one of the people of God. This is the people of Israel. We're God's covenant people. Pick your head up. Everything's going to be good. Feel better about yourselves. Two years and we're out of this. Poor old Jeremiah hanging his head, because not because he doesn't know it's the truth, but hanging his head because he sees the incredible destruction of his people being persuaded because they, as the gospel of John tells us, that given the choice, they'd rather believe the lie than the truth. You know why? Because the lie is often far more attractive to their sensibilities and their desire. So God declares an end. He declares an end uh, to Hananiah, and by all indications... Though I certainly, as I've told you many times before, and I try to be perfectly honest, though I cannot see in the heart of a man by the name of Hananiah, I certainly cannot see any evidence of the fact by virtue of what he said, by virtue of what God did. I'm extremely, let's put it this way, I'm extremely concerned that Hananiah had any relationship with God. And therefore God did, in fact, inflict this judgment upon him because he deserved it. Every bit of it. What is the only hope of escaping the yoke of our sin? That was God's yoke. That yoke was, was certainly an indication of God's judgment. God's judgment against what? It wasn't just against the people because He didn't like them. It was against the people because their habitual, rebellious sin. In the face of God's judgment, in the face of God's appeal to turn. And they would not. I bet that given the opportunity that these people would have gladly had given the choice, maybe in regret, to have stuck their head into that wood of yoke. Why do I know that? Well, it seems that Jesus Christ, as we've already read to you, used a similar image in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. We read these verses to you before. We read them again tonight in closing. Where Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But notice what rest means. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not rest for your bodies, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was speaking about giving true rest, and he was doing so in the face of what? He was doing so in the face of of suffering in the face of tribulation, which he said was an absolute certainty in the life of a believer. Christ never offered you 
an idea of freedom to do as you please. He offered you freedom to do as He commands. Now, some may feel that's a contradiction, but not to the people who truly know the Lord. The ones who truly know the Lord know that they would far more, far rather accept the yoke of Christ than any other yoke because they understand it's not, it's not whether you will serve, it's who you will serve. And so we leave this again in chapter 28 with this incredible, just incredible illustration here of the patience, the endurance, and the faithfulness of a man of God to continue to deliver the message that he's been given recognizing, and not the first time, this was not, this was not Jeremiah's first occasion for such criticism and rejection. And yet he patiently continued on, delivering the message that God had given him in spite of what pain it brought to himself personally to see it transpire. And I think we need to know that when Jeremiah came to Hananiah and told him of God's judgment, I'm convinced if he wanted Hananiah's prophecy to be true, he took no pleasure in telling Hananiah what was going to happen to him as a result of what he's done. So here we are. God has said that you and I are at peace with Him. God has declared that we can know the peace of God in the life that we're living even now. And says that that peace will be an amazing thing when it begins to exceed our understanding. To know that even the face of the worst things that happen in our life the greatest challenges of our life, that we can still put our head on the pillow at night and say, God, you have known me before I entered the womb of my mother. You have known me before the day that you opened my eyes and my heart and my mind to see you for who you really are. You have promised to know me through the course of the life that you have provided for me on the face of this earth and even more wonderfully, you will know me for all eternity. This is where I'm to find peace. Because there is nothing else surrounding in me in my life that I can depend on as I can depend on God. Not you, not me, not a government, not a geographical boundary, not a climate, not a culture, none of it. None of it can be relied upon. Every bit of it is passing through and passing away. I cannot depend on my body. It's already been letting me down and it will continue to do so. I can't depend on my wit or nor my intelligence because as, you, as many of you probably already know, I've had loved ones I, who have, in a sense, lost the effective use of their mind. Amen? It's a fact. One cannot depend on that either. Our only hope lies in our faith and our trust in our Heavenly Father who will care for us no matter what the circumstances are. This is the peace that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So we don't have any question on these verses tonight.